Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, January the 24th, 2023. It is currently 5.30 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where it is currently... Are you ready for this? Are are you sitting down? I need you to sit down, all right? If you're driving, you need to pull over to the side of the road because this is shocking, shocking news, all right? Everybody ready? Pull over. Are you ready? I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where it is currently 34 degrees. What in the world is going on that is absolutely unacceptable. It should not be 34 degrees. It was just the other day, right? I was look I was here in the studio looking out the window behind me and all throughout the neighborhood everyone was out they had the lawnmower out they were cutting the grass, right? They had the weed eater, they were edging and everybody was just out there working, talking, kids were riding bikes and everybody was out. It was like 70 something degrees, I don't know, almost close to 80 and then now it's 34 degrees. That's unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. But you know what else is unacceptable? Well, sometimes what is unacceptable is what people do to Romans chapter 7. There's a specific thing people do to Romans chapter 7 that sometimes drives me crazy, but we're going to talk about that. All right, it's hard. That, oh man, Harp and Coast to Coast AM. I, I I remember all the programs about Harp and Coast to Coast AM. But 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 that's, I'm getting distracted. Someone just made a comment about Harp in the uh, comment section. All right, but we're, I'm not gonna, not gonna focus on that. Not, not gonna get sidetracked. Not gonna get sidetracked. We are gonna be talking about Romans chapter seven. I can't say much more than that because I don't really know what's going to be said. I don't really know what's going to be said because here's what happened. Let me open this up. On January the 21st at 1.18 p.m., January the 21st, 1.18 p.m., I received an email, and this is how the email reads. I was listening to this last night. Link. Godspeed. (laughs) That's the email. I was listening to this last night. Link. Godspeed. So I went to see what they were listening to last night, realized it's about Romans chapter 7, grabbed the the audio file because they, they sent me to YouTube, ripped the audio from it, hit play, realized about the first, I don't know, one minute and 23 seconds is a commercial because they obviously monetize their, their Christian podcast. They haven't monetized. So I get past their, their commercial for some counseling service. And then I have it queued up, and that's as much as I know. So there's a part of me that I think I know which perspective they're going to go with, and that's how I was going to start my intro, was like, but I'm not going to do that. Here's what I know. What absolutely drives me crazy is what people have a tendency to do to Romans chapter 7, because I think it's, I think it's crazy what they do. I, I, and, and I, I, here's, here's what I try to hear this out. Okay. Or try to at least hear me out here. All right. Try to at least think this through. This is important, right? Thinking caps on. I want you to listen to this. When, as we listen to them discuss Romans chapter seven, 
Whether you agree or disagree with their perspective, here to me is the question. First, what are the long-term implications of the view? Whichever view they give, whichever interpretation they give of Romans chapter 7, what is the long-term implications of it, right? In other words, if you give an, and this is just true of anything, this is just a very important hermeneutical principle. If someone offers an interpretation of a chapter, you may just see it as, oh, they they have a different understanding of that chapter than I do. But that's not always the case because of the way they interpret that one thing that has a long-term implication on how you understand many other issues related to doctrine or theology. It's not just how they interpret one chapter. It's the implications of that interpretation, right? So that's the one thing. Whatever view they are going to give us in Romans 7, whether you agree or disagree, what are the long-term implications of that particular view? And number two, this is very important. This is very important. Why are they going with the view that they're going with. Now, I know that what we should say is, well, they're going with that view because they believe that's how, that's what the chapter says. But I I am sometimes skeptical. Sometimes when people like, well, no, this is what the text says. To me, it's like, no, no, you want the text to say this because this is the the theology, this is the view you hold to. And if you, and so you can't interpret that chapter any other way. So really to me, whatever they do with Romans chapter seven, what, why are they holding to that? Because there's a bigger theological issue that they're trying to hold on to. There's a bigger concept they're trying to hold to. For example, if you're a millennialist, right? If you, if you're a millennial, you believe we're in the millennial kingdom. Now you believe there's no future millennial for Israel. If you believe Israel has been replaced, uh, by the, the church. Well, then when you go to certain passages in the old Testament and you're like, and you see these prophecies, you, you have no choice, but to say, that's not the Israel. That's the church. That's not literal. That's, that's spiritual. That's allegorical. That's not real land. That's not, no, this is all, this is all being fulfilled in the church. Even if there's nothing in the text that would really drive you to that conclusion, you have to interpret that way because if you interpret it any other way, your entire eschatology explodes and implodes in and on itself. So sometimes when people do things to Romans chapter seven, it's like, so why are you afraid? What Like, There's a reason you're holding to that. So what is the long-term implications and what would be the reason maybe someone is going with a specific interpretation, right? I know that what we should say is, well, because they exegeted the passage and but I, I, I just, I've just seen it too many times, especially with the amillennial kind of camp. And listen, I used to be more amillennial, but I mean, just sometimes you're just looking at some of those passages in the Old Testament, like how in the world? Israel's not Israel, that land is not land. That 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 is not literal. That is the church, and it's like it's it's like there's no linguistic, textual reason to draw that conclusion other than you have to do that to maintain your eschatology, and that and that oh that drives me crazy. So we're gonna look into this. We're gonna see what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm a little. I, I don't know. I don't know what to expect. It This is over an hour long, so I, I probably should have already uh, entitled this part one. This is probably going to take us four or five 
Who knows how long this is going to take? Uh, I'm I'm probably going to add this to our series on Romans. I'm probably going to add this to our series on Romans. Um, Or I may just create a special series for Romans chapter 7 by itself. We have done teaching on Romans 7. So um, who knows? We'll just see how this plays out. We'll see what the reaction is to this. This may turn out to be great. This may turn out to be horrible. I don't know. I don't know what to expect. I know what you're thinking. You should know. You should listen to it first, but that would be no fun. The fun part is that just as much, like you have no idea what's getting ready to happen. I have no idea what's getting ready to happen. So you know the way I like you to view this, right? You're driving your car. You're you're driving down close to where my house is here in Skyline Estates, right? You're driving down and all of a sudden you look over and you're like, Ooh, I see the light on in the studio. I bet you he's getting ready to do something. I bet you he's up there listening to something. So you stop. You, 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 you don't even knock on the door. You just walk in. You come, you come through the living room. You go through the kitchen. You see the door of the studio. You walk up the stairs. You're like, hey, what are you doing? Wait, how did you get in my house? Right? No, I'm, I, I just ignore that you're in my house. I'm like, oh, I'm getting ready to listen to something on Romans chapter 7. And you're like, well, I'm going to, you grab a chair, you sit down like, well, I'm going to listen with you. And we, we just listen together and talk about it. That's the way I want you to envision this. I don't want you to actually just walk into my house. I don't, but, but for our illustration, yeah, just you you drove by, you saw the light in the studio, you just walked up here and said, what are you getting ready to do? Listen to Romans, uh, a, a message on Romans 7 or a podcast episode on Romans 7. Well, I'm going to listen with you. So you grab your Bible or you, you brought your Bible in. You have your Bible, I have my Bible, we have notebooks, right? I have an extra notebook. I give, I give you an extra pencil, right? All right, here we go. I, I get you something to drink. You got something to drink? I got something to drink. Okay, right. I got a bag of... Uh, I hear that. This is Miss Baird's Grab and Go Powdered Sugar Donuts. That's, that's what I have right here. Does that, does that sound like, okay, all right, you don't want that? Okay, I got you. Okay, well, you have nothing to eat. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Romans chapter 7, having a little bit of fun before we get into who knows what. I don't know if this is going to be good. I don't know if it's going to be bad, but I hope you're ready to go. If you're listening live on the Spreaker app, feel free to add your comments. I always appreciate that. All right, but here we go. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Registration for Exiles in Babylon 2023 is now open. March 23rd to 25th here in Boise, Idaho. You can attend live in Boise. There's 1,100 seats open, um, but last year we did sell out. So if you do want to attend the Exiles in Babylon conference in Boise, Idaho live, you want to register uh sooner than later you can also attend virtually as we did last year as well so um we're going to be talking about the future of the church uh disability of the church multi-ethnic uh perspectives on american christianity and we're also going to have a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering i'll release some of the speakers that we've already lined up in um in probably maybe next by next month uh we're still shoring up some speakers but we have uh, another amazing lineup of thoughtful raw Christian thinkers who are going to tackle some of these tough topics. And, um, oh, also, uh, we do have 200 uh, early bird uh, seats available, okay? So once the 200 is gone, then the price is going to go up. 
Um, so if you want, if you know you're going to attend, uh, take advantage of those 200, at least some of them. So we have a conference, early bird registration, because you can save money. Then the price goes up. Uh, it's that time of year, I guess. I've already received an email for another conference telling me, register now, because in seven days, the price goes up, because you know how we do things in Christianity. We want to preach the word of God. We want to have a very important conversation about the problem of evil. And you can listen to this very important conversation for the low, low price of $299. I think the one that was sent to me today, if I register now, I think it's $199. And if I don't register now, it could go up to $359 so I can get into a building to hear people teach the word of God. Yes, Nothing like that. The teaching of God's word has become an industry that we say, I know I'm going to go on one of my full-blown rants on Christian conferences. I will never understand it. But they sold out last year. What? And they got, what, 16, 1,700 seats? They're going to sell out. They're going to sell out because Christians are like, here's my money. I'll pay to hear the word of God taught. I, I hear, I'll pay money. I'll pay money. I'll pay money. I, I just, I just, man. I just don't understand why the early church did not adopt this idea. Why didn't Peter come out for the for my ser- for his Pentecost day of Pentecost sermon? He didn't. Why didn't he charge, you know, an entrance fee? Why didn't he charge early registration? Hey, I'm going to be preaching a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and remember, I'm the guy who denied Jesus three times. So, I mean, there's a lot of controversy going around this sermon. So, register now for 199, and you can get. I mean, they could have just. Why didn't the early church just all the apostles charge people money for Why didn't Jesus charge an entrance fee for the Sermon on the Mount for crying out loud? I don't know. I, I, just, I just don't understand the whole concept. I, I'll never wrap my mind around it. And um, I, I just, I, 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 I just, don't, I just don't get it. I just, I just don't understand. I just don't, but all right. I know I'm the, I know, I know I'm the, like the, I'm like the weird guy on the street corner wearing the cardboard box, you know, saying the end, the end is near. And I know everyone just like, whatever, I'm paying my money. I'm going to go in and I'm going to have a good time. There's nothing wrong with paying $300 to hear the word of God preached. There's nothing wrong with paying $200 to get inside a church to hear a conference. There's nothing wrong with it. So I, 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 I personally, I think we should just start charging, you know, $20 cover charge to get in for church. I just think that's what we should do. I mean, if you can charge money to get in for a, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. The $20 cover charge to get into church is absurd and blasphemous because there's not a celebrity behind the door. If I can get enough celebrities together, then I can charge uh, all kinds of money. All right. So, all right, I, I digress. All right, here we go. So Romans chapter seven. Here we go. Let's see what they're going to say. Those 200 seats that are available at an early bird rate. All the info is uh, on our website, theologinarod.com. My guest today is my best friend, Dr. Joey Dodson, professor at Denver Seminary. And uh, uh, Joey is working on a book on the interpretation of Romans 7, the famous passage where Paul talks about being overwhelmed with sin. So I'm going to go ahead and read. Okay, so someone's working on a new book on Romans 7. We need to keep a lookout for this book. We need to write this person's name down, and we need to be on the lookout for this book. I don't know when it's going to be released. If we can find out when it's released, we need to do that. I'm going to back this up just a little bit so we can get his name. 
I don't know if he's going to give us the title of the book, but we need to get all of this information because a new book on Romans 7, how influential it will be, I don't know, but you never know. You never know when that new Christian book comes out, if it turns into like a a big thing and like everyone's going to be talking about it and it's going to have a massive impact on the way the church moves forward. But we will see. So let's get let's let's get the information again. Okay. So once the two hundred is gone, then the price is going to go up. Um, so if you want, if you know you're going to attend, uh, take advantage of those two hundred, at least some of those two hundred seats that are available at an early bird rate. All the info is uh, on our website, theologinrod.com. My guest today is my best friend, Dr. Joey Dodson, Professor Joey Dodson. Joey Dodson. New book on Romans 7. Joey Dodson, new book on Romans 7. If we can get a published publishing date when that book is supposed to be released or the drop date for the book, we will keep up with it. And once it, it is uh, out, I think I, I, I feel like we're going to have some podcast episodes in the future about Romans chapter 7. Oh, boy. Here we go. We're at Denver Seminary. And uh, uh, Joey is working on a book on the interpretation of Romans 7, the famous passage where Paul talks about being overwhelmed with sin. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. This is Romans 7, 14 to 25, um, and then we'll jump into our conversation. Romans 7, 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But I practice the evil that I do not want to do. For if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. That's from the Christian Standard Bible. All right, now let's stop right here. Let me just emphasize this. Whatever he's going to say about verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, whatever he says about those verses, because I don't know which direction they're going to go. I'm assuming if he's getting ready to put out a book on Romans 7, he's not going to go with the way most people interpret this. He's going, I'm assuming, he, this is just a guess, I could be wrong, but I'm guessing he's going to go after Romans 7 and say Paul wasn't saved. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm that's where I feel like this is going, I could be wrong. But, but no matter what he does, from verse 14 to 24, I want you to know how it ends. Verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ. That's the language of a saved person. (laughs) I thank God through Jesus. I don't see a lot of lost people walking around going, I thank God through Jesus Christ, right? Our Lord, right? Our Lord, 
our Lord. Okay, this is the language of a believer. And then please know what he says. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God. But look at how he ends it. This is how this whole section ends. With an acknowledgement, an admission, a confession. But with the flesh, the law of sin. He ends the chapter with a confession that with his flesh, he is serving the law of sin. And then that leads right into chapter 8, verse 1, which everyone knows. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So, whatever he does, just I just don't want you to forget verse 25. That because 25 is the language of is the language of a believer. No one can deny that. Says our Lord, plate connecting himself with other believers, and then he confesses. With the mind, I'm serving the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You, you, I, there's just no way to get around that. I, I've said over and over and over that I believe verse 25 is the most significant verse in Romans 7 because all of the debate about what precedes it, to me, is put to rest because in 25, he ends that discussion with using the words, the, the language of a believer. So where where does he get converted at? And verses 14 to 25, if you're going to go with the idea that he wasn't saved. Let's see. Let's see what's getting ready to happen here. Here we go. Translation. And uh, Joey and I are going to wrestle with this passage. The main question is, is Paul describing a believer or a non-believer here? Or or more specifically, a pre-converted Jew um, or a post-converted, just, I guess, Christian, Jew or non-Jew? So. Now, wait a minute here. It's, I, I think that's a wrong way of verbalizing. I think this is a wrong way of putting it. Wouldn't it be better? Okay, hang on. Let's go back to Romans 7. Let's look at pronouns. Let's look at pronouns, right? right? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. Sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what? I would that do I not, but what I hate that do I. So don't, you can't say is Paul describing a, someone before conversion or someone after conversion. No, no, no. Paul is describing himself. The pronouns are personal pronouns where he's describing himself. So don't turn this into Paul's just describing someone else. Paul is describing himself. So either Paul is describing himself pre-conversion or he's describing himself post-conversion is this before conversion or after conversion but paul is describing himself i just want to make sure we get that 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 look we have to agree on that he's using the personal pronoun i i i i i i he's talking about himself Okay, everybody got that down? Look, okay, let me just help you out. All right, this is very important. Here's my hermeneutical principle of the day. Whenever you find yourself facing a controversial passage, don't enter, don't immediately engage in debate about the passage. Set the debate aside, go through the passage, and simply figure out what can be easily observed what can be easily seen because forget the debate because sometimes we start debating and we talk past each other. What we have to establish is what is clear in the text. What is clear is Paul is talking about himself. 
what is clear, the passage ends with Paul using the language of a believer and still saying that he serves the law of sin with his flesh. That is clear. Like that, that, that much has to be just written down. Like this is what is clear in the text. Don't, sometimes when people want to debate, I don't care if it's charismatics, I don't care who it is, whatever theological system, like, no, 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 I'm not going to debate you. Let's go to the text. What is clear in the text? What can we agree is clear on the text? Because sometimes, once you establish what is clear, it eliminates possible interpretations and eliminates possible debate. You're like, well, we can't debate that. The text, the text doesn't say that. Look at what the text actually says. Paul is using personal pronouns, speaking about himself, and he ends this discussion with using the words of a believer. That is, and, and even then, he says he's serving the law of sin with his flesh. That is non-negotiable, not debatable. That is observational fact. Oh, yeah, that's what we're going to wrestle with. And we are going to let you know the correct interpretation of this passage. So please welcome back to the show for the 57th time or something like that. Uh, the one and only Dr. Joey Dodson. Hey, Joey. What's up, man? How's it going? Welcome back. I think you lead the uh, most frequented guest on my podcast. You're kind of like the Joey Diaz of the El General. <laughs> <laughs> For, for you Rogan fans out there. <laughs> Always an honor. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, hey, um, when we first met, uh, I remember I think within a few minutes, maybe, eh, maybe not minutes, maybe a few days, we started talking about Romans 7, and both of us were pretty elated that um, we both were kind of reading Romans 7 correctly. <laughs> um, why, so, and, and I know you're working on a book, a whole book on the interpretation of Romans 7, and um, I mean, just to set it up for somebody who has no clue what we're even talking about. So Romans seven is a famous passage where Paul, um, talks about how he is just overwhelmed with sin, struggling to sin, not just struggling to sin, but like enslaved to sin. There's nothing good in me and woe is me. And it's, it's become like, I would say a key text for, especially for like more reformed Christianity, would you say Protestant reformed where this kind of really really low view of man, you know, um, of humanity. And, um, okay. Now, all right, wait, 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 just a minute, just a minute. Okay. Now that language, like, Hey, it's really common. in you know, those reformed people who have this low, 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 low view of humanity. Well, now slow down, slow down. Okay. So if we're not going to go with the reformed view of humanity, ladies and gentlemen, that would tend to lead us to a more optimistic view of humanity, which would be classified typically theologically as, come on class, what would we call it? If you're going to, if you're going to reject the reformed low, 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 low view of humanity, then what is the high, 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 high view of humanity, okay? Having a little bit of fun here, but what would be that view? If you have the reformed view, the other view would be Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. Now, if you're going to go after this from a semi-Pelagian perspective, well then, I'm sorry, we got a problem, okay? Because I reject Pelagianism outright, 1,000%, no way, 
know how. So he already, I, like, I know I'm not a fan of that. The reformed, low, low, low view of humanity? Are you talking like you reject total depravity? That, that, that's, that's, oh, okay. This is just a little, it's, it's making me nervous, making me nervous, making me nervous. But we will see. Here we go. But, you know, if you, and, and a lot of people read this passage and like resonate with it, like, yeah, yeah, I, this is how I feel. I read the passage and it's like a mirror to my life. But if you look at the passage in context, it's not, I'll be, I'll try to be new, more neutral here. It's not super clear um, that he's talking about his post converted state. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So now as you said, I told you that I thought that's the direction it was going to go. He's trying to be neutral. Now he's already says that they've got the right interpretation. Okay. So that's fine. I got no problem. Okay. You say you have the right interpretation. That's fine. Okay. So, but he says, it's not clear. It's not clear that Paul is referring to his post converted state, that Paul is referring to himself before conversion. All right, now, if you, if I almost want to stop right here and just make this a Bible study exercise is almost what I want to do. All right, but, but if you were to start reading Romans chapter one to, to the end of Romans six, because Romans six, he ends, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Okay, then you start chapter seven, verse one. Now, I would ask you, if you start, if you read Romans 1 to Romans 7, at what point does Paul, at any point between Romans 1 and 7, does he refer to himself before conversion, then after conversion? And if there's an example of him doing so, is it obviously, is it clear? Like, does Paul use some language to clearly say, before Christ, I was this? Does he, what what language? Like, what would be your clues? If you go through Romans 1 through 7, you're like, okay, see, here Paul's referring to himself prior uh, pre-conversion and now post-conversion. Look at the language he uses. Is that same language used in Romans seven? That would be a good. That would be a good hermeneutical exercise, right? Ro- Romans one to seven. Does Paul ever refer to himself pre-conversion, post-conversion? If so, what language does he use? And does he utilize the same language, the same phrase out phraseology in Romans chapter seven? I think that's a good, good question. That's a good question, right? Number two. In Romans 7 alone, does Paul at some point seem to indicate, just forget what happens in Romans 1 through, up to Romans 1 through 7, or up to 7. In chapter 7 by itself, is there something that seems to signify to you, whoa, 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 Paul just changed. Paul, Paul just, he just flipped the whole switch, the whole script. He just flipped it. And if he flipped it, when does it get flipped back? Because there's no question, if if 14 to 25, if 14 to 25 is the debated section, then they're saying something happens between verses, let's say, chapter 7, 7 through 13. So let's go back and read it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shall not covet. That doesn't sound like the, the, the words of a someone before conversion, right? 
He's talking about the, the, the law, a correct understanding of the law of God. Verse 8, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment uh, which was uh, ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So he's seemingly to to be describing what happened to him, what happened to him with the law. Now, are you saying that he starts to, now you could make this argument that he's describing what happened to him with the law and he's continuing to show what his state was under the law. Now, let's say that this is true. Let's say this is true. Well, then why does he end the section? So so let's say that he's, he's describing all of this about the law and that this is what was happening to him when he was under the law, right? So let's say he continues Oh, through 14 and following, that, that he's describing his pre-converted days. But look at how it ends. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Immediately he's using the language of a believer. And look at how it ends. My mind, myself, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He still ends the section with still explaining that he's serving the law of sin with this flesh. So even if you say, look, starting in verse 7, He's describing what happened to him, that the law basically condemned him and he was under the law and he was trapped under the law and he needed some help because the law condemned, condemned, condemned. And then at some point he flips to say, but here's what salvation brought. Well, if it does flip, it ends with him still acknowledging he's serving the law of sin with his flesh. So how does this work all right let, let's see how they explain this at, le- at least there's there's um there's a debate about that both you and i would end up saying yeah he's not not describing this is not describing a christian who's been filled with the holy spirit so um why don't we i, I want to do a deep dive because it okay let's stop right here question so a christian so so he just made it very clear This is not describing a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. So according to him, when you are a Christian and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, these words do not describe you. I'm going to read them. All right. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate that do I. In other words, we can paraphrase. According to them, if, if, if their, their philosophy, their interpretation is right, when you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, it can never be said of you that you can never save yourself. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. That is just no longer a reality in the life of a believer who has the Holy Spirit. That is ludicrous. Christians constantly do what they don't want to do and don't do what they, they constantly do what they don't want to do and do 
They constantly don't do what they want to do and do what they don't want to do, if I'm saying that correctly. That's a constant thing in the life of a believer. I don't want to do this. I know I shouldn't do this. And you end up doing it. Man, I know I should be doing this. I know I should be praying more. I know I should be reading more. And I don't end up doing it. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I, I want to do, I don't do. That is the reality of a, the Christian. That is literally the Christian life. I know that God wants me to be holy as he is holy. I wish I could be as holy, but I, I don't do it. I know I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. I know I'm not supposed to covet. I know I'm not supposed to have idols, but I end up having them. I mean, you have to live in la-la land to, to, to believe that, that this is not described. That, that language describes, you know why so many people believe this describes them? Because they live it. They experience it. I mean, this is, you know, I like doing de- every once in a while on Theology Raw, doing just a deep dive into scripture, uh, get into the nitty gritty, the exegetical stuff. And um, so I'd like to do that with Romans 7 with you. Does that sound good? Yes, let's do it. Here we Let, go again. Um, did I, just in my setting up the passage, anything to add, clarify, how, how would you set up the passage for somebody, for, again, for somebody that might be just vaguely familiar with what's going on there? Yeah, well, once again, the first rule of high class, I mean, the first rule of Bible interpretation is context, 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 excuse me, <clears throat> is context, context, context. And uh, most people take Romans 7, 14 through 25, especially out of context. And so you want to read Romans 7 and lie to Romans 5 through 8. And what Paul says in Romans 6 and what Paul says in Romans 8 seemingly stands in stark contradiction, mm-hmm. diametrically opposed to the wretch's condition in Romans 7. And so I think one of the things that sometimes hinders our interpretation is chapters and verses, uh, because we stop at, oh, what a wretch I am, who deliver me from uh, this body of death. But uh, what does Paul say in 8.1? Therefore, now there's no condemnation. And so uh, there seems to be a shift there. And Paul's going to come and say, and the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you singular free um, from the law of sin and death. And so if you keep reading on the Romans 8, it seems like. Okay. Let me just make sure we establish something. First of all, they say that it's that that you know they they on one hand he kind of argued that it's not clear, but at the same time he seems to. I think he, they're going to try to argue that it is clear. It's there is it's convoluted and confusing at times. Everyone has to go into this acknowledging it. So uh, let's just I'll help you with my perspective. My perspective is there is no question that if you go through Romans 6, you got some passages that seem to be making like, you've been set free. You can do it. You got other passages that seem to say, wait a minute, you can't do it. So you can, but you can't. And it's convoluted and confusing. So here's the thing that I like to do is let's just step back and look at the reality of Christianity for 2000 years. The reality of Christianity for 2000 years is sin, 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 failure, 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 failure. And if I don't want to look at 2000 years of church history, I can just look at my own life and realize that I still sin and I still sin and I still sin. So why do Christians continue to sin? Why do they continue to fall? Why is it that Christians cannot? Not obey the law of God perfectly? How come we can't be perfect if we've been set free? Why is the fact that when I can take just a couple of commands, 
Be holy as God is holy. No Christian ever fulfills that. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. No Christian ever fulfills that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just I can just look at this from a very practical, realistic approach and go, well, wait a minute. Sin still exists. The sin nature is still there. Everyone agrees we can't be perfect. And if I can't be perfect, that means I'm still enslaved to something, right? If I've been set free, then I can be perfect. If there's a limit, then that's not freedom. You may say, well, now that you're a Christian, you have a longer leash, okay? You can you can run closer to perfection, but at some point, that leash is going to pull back and snap your neck, and you're going to fall to the ground. Well, then I'm not free. Either I'm free or I'm not free. Now, how do we understand this apparent contradiction in language? The only way to, to understand this apparent contradiction in language is, to me, the most simplistic, simple way to understand it. It's this. In Christ Jesus... In my position, I am free from the law of sin and death. In my position, I am holy, I am righteous, I am obedient, obedient because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. In my practice, I am a sinner with a sinful nature, with a sinful flesh, who will continue to sin and continue to fall. There are two realities of every believer, the positional reality and the practical reality. If I throw that distinction out, everything turns into a weird world of contradiction and back and forth. So... Let's see how they're going to explain. I do agree that there is some stark contrast, maybe between Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8. I agree that there is a stark contrast. So I don't like when, so yeah, I'll just let them, they can make any accusation that like people are ripping it out of context. I don't think it's a matter of people ripping it out of context. I think it's a matter of people going, how do we understand this apparent at times seemingly contradiction? Uh, Paul is saying, hey, this the predicament, the plight, mm -hmm. the mess that you're in in Romans 7 now is no longer because we're in Christ. And so he'll go on to say that we're no Right. The plight that we were in in Romans 7 of the condemnation under the law no longer exists because I'm in Christ Jesus. But the struggle continues to persist because Christians continue to sin. longer obligated to the, fulfill the desires of our sinful nature. And so I think the context uh, is yeah. one of the So you're no longer obligated to fulfill the, the sinful lust of the flesh. In other words, you can stop. Now, the minute you say those words, then I can be perfect. Now, what almost every time I've ever had this debate with anyone, and they say that, hey, no, no, now in Christ, you no longer have the obligation to fulfill the sin of the flesh, uh, the lust of the flesh. So I can be perfect and almost with, I, I never had it not go this way. Well, no, 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 you can't be perfect. <laughs> if I can't be perfect, then I'm not free. If I can't be perfect, then there is a limit to the ability that you're selling. You can't sell me a car that says this car now is free of ever needing any kind of fuel. It never needs fuel. It doesn't need electricity. It doesn't need anything. You are free, but you can only get 100 miles down the road before you, 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 you have to pull over and you're going to be out of, well, it won't go anymore. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said I'm free from ever needing fuel. Well, you are free. Well, I mean, you're not free to drive perfectly. You're free to drive 
So, hey, and that's why Christians will accuse car salesmen. Hey, 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 come here, come here, come here. You need a little bit of this. You get Jesus. You're free from sin. You're free from the bondage of sin. You're free. You can live a life. I mean, you're still going to sin. What? What? You got to explain. I'm free in Christ Jesus. I'm now holy, perfect, and righteous. I'm, I'm covered in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But in practice, so guess what? In my mind, I may be serving the law of God. I may, I may my, in my mind, I'm serving the law of God. I, I can think about it and say, that's what I want to do. But in my flesh, the reality always is. The fleshly reality of a believer is sin. That is the fleshly reality of every believer, and it's the reality in every single church. I don't care what you claim. You can claim all, unless you just redefine what sin is. And if you want to redefine what sin is, then guess what? I, I'm not even going to argue with you. I'm going to run to, I'm going to come back up to my studio. I'm going to lock the door so nobody can walk in. And I'm going to grab me a piece of paper and I'm going to write my own definition of what sin is. And it's going to include everything I don't do and everything I'd want to do will not be included in that list. And then I'm going to go live my life doing the things I want to do and not feel like that I'm in sin because I've been set free. I've been set free because I just changed what sin is. But if sin is not only what you do, but it literally goes to your internal desires, wants, thoughts, then we're all, we're all doomed. The main reasons that most people misread Romans 7, aside from their personal experience. That was a big one for me. And I, I want to get into the nitty gritty exegetical stuff, but let, why don't we start with like a historical overview? Like, has this passage sure. always been kind of like debated in the church or who you, where's where, give us a quick kind of history of interpretation of, of yeah, the passage. very good. Yeah, yeah. So the very first commentator that we have is origin. So this takes us back to the second century and for okay. origin, Paul is obviously not talking about himself. Um, really? Origin says that uh, he puts on a persona, um, kind of does an impersonation of someone else of, uh, of an unbeliever who is under the law. And so that's the very first, and I would just challenge you to look at all the other things Origin taught. Okay, I, I, I would like. I don't know if we want to go to Origin for his interpretation on Romans seven. And an Origin is like those personal pronouns. Paul is just pre pretending to be someone else. He's created a persona. He's created a persona. What would you find in the text to say that he created a persona? And again, look up all the other things Origin taught and see if you, you know, if he's who you want to listen to. First one, and one thing to say: not only is he the earliest, but he's the He's a natural Greek speaker, and so he thinks Paul is using this rhetorical device um, that's used to almost use a foil for what the gospel is going to be. And so, and it's interesting because he seems to anticipate that people would say, "Well, wait, 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 wait. Why does Paul use the eye?" And he says, "Well, Paul's just doing what we see the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament saints do when they kind of show solidarity uh, with." Uh, uh, and so he kind of uh, appeals to this Jewish tradition of confession. Uh, with uh, the lost. And, but he says that it's totally not Paul. Now, Origen, interestingly enough, he says it's uh, an unbeliever, an unbeliever, an unbeliever. But then at the end, he has like a, a pastoral heart and says, but Paul may be using this eye to relate to some of the people in the congregation who is, that's this their ex uh, experience, but he does that to bring them to the glory of Romans chapter eight. And so Origen's our very first one that we have that deals with this. 
Okay, so we, so even Paul or even Origen try to at least allow it, it. It it this is all these conversations always turn into well you can you 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 can you, you can be free but I mean some of you aren't free yet but you can be free but but if you're not free well are you a sinner are you saved oh, it, it turns into this crazy thing but let me make it very clear the glories that we have in Christ Jesus is that we are saved by an imputed righteousness, but we are still unrighteous. The glory of the gospel is not that we are made righteous in practice. It's that we are declared righteous in our position. And then we live out in the, the Christian life is the impossible task of living out what is what is true positionally, practically, which we will never do because positionally we are perfect. Asmus follows suit, um, and I was in uh, Cambridge uh, uh, last month, and I was at the pub overlooking where the uh, office of Erasmus was. But Erasmus also really? follows suit and says, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. And he even tells us that no one before his time uh, considered Paul talking about himself. And so he thinks Paul puts on this mask, this persona. Um, as- All right, so Erasmus believed the same thing, that Paul was just pr- pretending to be someone someone else. Paul wasn't speaking of himself. So even though it's given the personal pronouns, now personal pronouns are not really personal pronouns. They're fake personal pronouns pretending to be someone else. As well, and uh, also appeals to the practice of what we see in the Old Testament saints doing this. The The next one that we have is Jerome. Um, and Jerome, he's really, Jerome's the guy who uh, translated the Latin Vulgate, amazing scholar. And Jerome uh, also has a, a series of letters that he wrote to uh, learned women during this time, they would they would send him questions, and he would send them back. And so, Agalia uh, writes a letter and says, "What in the world is Romans seven talking about?" Hmm. And so, also Jerome comes says, "Paul's not talking about himself, but instead he's putting on this mask. He's doing an impersonation." He also says that uh, you know I I probably need to write a book on this, maybe numerous books to explain it. But one thing is clear is that this is not Paul. Um, this is uh, Paul putting on uh, the mask. Uh, for the sake of his rhetorical effect. Why, why do you think they, so, and, and those aren't in chronological order, right? So Erasmus is more, what, 1500s? Origin, Jerome, Erasmus, yeah. sorry. No, it's fine. Um, why do you think they were so confident? Like, I, it, it, was it for exegetical reasons or because of, yeah. they, they, or did they or did they come at the text believing like, no, Christians aren't enslaved to sin? Like, we kind of come at the text more, existentially of already thinking you're so way down to sin we're horrible and then we read this text and it's like yeah see but i wonder if they even had more i mean i'm just thinking like the ascetic tradition and their view of obedience and stuff was a lot different than kind of how we view it in american christianity but um, yeah almost all of them appeal to and i just want to remind you of something um let me see if i can find this and if we, if we, if, if the Erasmus, cause he said 1500s, if we're going with Erasmus, um, Erasmus was viewed as, I mean, uh, Luther had his, uh, argument with Erasmus, his debate with Erasmus, I uh, believe in the bondage of the will, right? Yeah. The, the work focused on the issue of the enslaved will of man as a result of original sin. It was, a, it was a response to the diatribe, diatribe of Erasmus. Uh, and the translator's introduction to this work, it is said Luther saw Erasmus as an enemy of God and the Christian religion. 
who taught a Pelagian. I, I, so, in fact, there's an article re, uh, called The Pelagian Captivity of the Church, and it's referring to um, Erasmus's view, so which would be a form of Pelagianism, which, there we go, all right? So, he says Origen, and he says Erasmus, okay? I'm sorry, Origen I was at one point viewed, condemned as a heretic, and Erasmus clearly would be viewed as a heretic. So you've given me two heretics. And then we could get into a whole discussion about Jerome, but I mean, Origen and Erasmus, Erasmus is clearly a Pelagian. Clearly. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, or Pelagianism, would, I, I, I want, maybe I won't, I'll just try to be, I'll try to be as historically accurate. Let's just say Erasmus' understanding of the will was radically different than, than a reformed view of the will, which would believe the will is somehow free and you get into libertarian free will. But that goes back to Pelagianism, which believing the original sin did not impact man's ultimate nature. So really this is coming down to how did people understand the results of the fall? But again, all of them are like, no, Paul was pretending to be someone else. Paul couldn't be speaking of himself. He had to be pretending. He was putting on a mask. He was, it was a masquerade. They, Paul is pretending to be, he's acting. And they're saying the reason they came to this conclusion. Now, this is completely dishonest. They, they, because they don't know this. They're saying, well, the reason they came to this conclusion is because of their exegetical study. You, we, look. For every single person listening to me, all of us are always in danger of an interpreting a text based off our theological system. So if you view that the fall did not completely enslave the will of man and that and and that we are that in somehow we are free from this enslavement, well then Paul talking about being enslaved, you you'd be like, well, it can't be Paul. And even then, you would be careful, especially Erasmus, he, I mean, well, full-blown Pelagianism, I should say, wouldn't even believe a lost person is enslaved to it. So th- there are theological influence. You can't just say that, well, there was no theological influence. Every one of us, when we interpret a passage, there are these theological influences to it. So you've got to be at least honest with that. I mean, I mean, you don't, you didn't talk to Jerome. You didn't talk to Erasmus. You didn't talk to Origen. You don't know what was motivating them. So it's completely, you, you can't speak for them. Well, they, they did it for just purely exegetical reasons. And you know this, how did you, did you just text them up? Hey, Origen, when you said Paul, like, well, why, why give me a break? Give me a break. You can't do that. It's, it's ridiculous. All right, let's back this up. And it's like, yeah, see, but I wonder if they even had more – I mean, I'm just thinking like the ascetic tradition and their view of obedience and stuff was a lot different than kind of how we view it in American Christianity. But um. Yeah, almost all of them appeal to what Paul says elsewhere, oh. what he says – what he says. Let me back that up a little bit more. I feel like we skipped something there. Let me back this all the way up. All right, here we go. To explain it, but one thing is that this is not Paul. Um, this is uh, Paul putting on uh, the mask. Uh, for the sake of his rhetorical effect. Why, why do you think they, so, and, and those aren't in chronological order, right? So Erasmus is more, what, 1500s? Yeah, from, or, it's origin, Erasmus, origin, Jerome, Erasmus, yeah. sorry. No, it's fine. Um, Why do you think they were so confident? Like, I, it, it, it was it for exegetical reasons or because of, yeah. Yeah. They, or did they, or did they come at the text believing like, no, Christians aren't enslaved to sin. Like, we kind of come at the text more, existentially of 
already thinking you're so way down to sin we're horrible and then we read this text and it's like yeah see but i wonder if they even had more i mean i'm just thinking like the ascetic tradition and their view of obedience and stuff was a lot different than kind of how we view it in american christianity but um, yeah almost all of them appeal to what paul says elsewhere what he says what he says in romans 8 and so they are reading it uh contextual and says that if, if this is paul talking about himself then he's contradicting everything else that he has said um now, listen, okay, I do agree that if we read, Paul does this frequently, I mean, the New Testament does this frequently, that sometimes it appears a contradiction. Like on one hand, it sounds like that I'm completely set free from sin. I can do anything. And then the next minute, it seems like, well, sin is what you do. 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 How do we reconcile these two? I, the only way we can try to look, everyone is attempting to reconcile these issues. Let make, let's make it very clear. There is no one theological perspective that magically resolves these problems. Everyone's trying to resolve these problems. The only one that I think works to me, not only in relation to the text, but in relationship to reality. And you can't deny the reality, right? You can't. They, they seem to downplay that. Like, like we should not allow our experience to, to impact this text. But this, if this text is referring to something that we experience, it has to have some influence. So for me, the only thing that works, there is a positional reality and there is a practical reality. My position in Christ is I am holy, righteous, and free from sin. My posi- my, that's my position. And my practice in Christ is that I'm a sinner with a sinful nature and I will continue to struggle with sin and I will sin, 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 sin until glorification. My position, I'm sinless. In my practice, I'm sinful. All right, let's continue. And if it's Paul contradicting himself, I forget if it's Jerome or Erasmus, but one of them says, you know, if, if Paul can't overcome sin, then none of us can overcome sin, which is interesting. Ding, 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 ding. Oh my goodness, you just said it. If Paul can't overcome sin, none of us can overcome sin because none of us overcome sin. <laughs> like, how can you in your right, are you guys sitting here in your podcast saying that you've overcome sin? Now, to overcome sin, how would you define overcoming sin? If I overcome sin, I stop sinning, right? Because if I keep sinning, I've not overcome sin. Let me give you an example. Let's say I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day, right? I say, everyone, I come on the podcast, and like, hey, guys, this is my last, my last box of cigarettes, I'm throwing them away or my last pack of cigarettes. I'm throwing, maybe it's a box, right? I'm, this is it. My cigarettes are gone. I have overcome smoking. I've overcome it. And then you turn on the podcast about, you know, three months away. And I'm like, give me a second. Got a lot of cigarette. And I start smoking. You'd be like, wait, wait. I, hey, I've overcome smoking, but I still smoke. You're like, you didn't overcome smoking. You're still smoking. Well, you, if you're going to tell me that we can overcome sin, then that would have to mean sinlessness. <laughs> My goodness. And they're like, it, if, if Paul couldn't overcome sin, then none of us can. Well, none of us do. To overcome would be that I have defeated it. 
that I've done it. I've passed it. It's over. I've, I've, I've have victory. <laughs> we get to the, it's totally not Paul group. They're going to say exactly. They find consolation in that. But uh, these guys have said, no, no, uh, Paul is the one who says, I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. He's, he is the, the great apostle who um, it, it talks about being a temple of the God, God's spirit speaking through him. And so they look and just place this one minority report because Romans 7, this, this uh, monologue, there's nothing else like it. There's nowhere else in Paul's letters or in the New Testament that has this idea that we as believers are utterly sinful and there's nothing. There's nothing like it anywhere, anywhere in the New Testament. Nowhere. Okay. Let me see. I'll try to remember this. I remember one time. Long, 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 long time ago that there was a church. It was located in the city of Corinth. And someone got word that this church at Corinth was an absolute total train wreck. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were suing one another. There was somebody in the church was sleeping with his father's wife. It was just a free-for-all. It was crazy. And this person who got this news, oh, he was the Apostle Paul. And I remember what he said to the church at Corinth. If I remember correctly, I think he said, hey, guys, you're free from sin. You've overcome sin. You can't sin. Stop sinning. You've overcome it. You can be perfect. No, I, I, I think he said something like this. And brethren, I could not speak to unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envy, strife, division, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Yeah, there's no place in the New Testament. No place. None. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Here's Paul talking to a church and he says, you're carnal. You're carnal. He doesn't say, guys, you've overcome sin. You've been set free. No, he's like, you're carnal. You're carnal. But he still calls them babes in Christ. Still refers to them as brethren. Brethren, babes in Christ, carnal. That's Paul. All right. Good in us and we're sold as a slave. And so uh, for most of them, they're putting it side by side with what we see in the rest of scripture. I don't know if you remember Sesame Street, but the cookie monster, we'd have the different cookies and one would look like the other. And it's like uh, one of these things is not like the other. One of these just doesn't belong. He sings a song. Do you, do you know this? Did you grow up on Sesame Street? I, I didn't Street? grow up on Sesame Street. Oh, man. <laughs> How did you get through a PhD program without Sesame Street? Uh, and uh, conjunction, junction, watch your function uh, from... Uh, uh, I forgot the name of that, but anyway, uh, yeah. Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, so if you put Romans 7 side by side with all these other verses that are absolutely clear of what Paul says about himself mm-hmm. and other believers, then it, it just doesn't belong. And I think Cookie Monster would throw it away. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so so most of them. 
But please understand, we have that problem throughout the New Testament. Paul says some things about justification by grace alone through faith alone, and James seems to say we're not justified by faith alone. We've got these constant contradictions throughout the Bible. Like on one hand, you're free, you can do it. On the other hand, you're a sinner. How do we reconcile this? The only way to understand this, again, is position and practice. My, because I'm saying, look, unless they're going to throw out the words, do you believe we're saved by an imputed righteousness or do you believe we're saved by an infused righteousness? If I believe I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, guess what the result is of believing that people are saved by an imputed righteousness? That they are declared righteous when they're not. <laughs> they, they are declared righteous when they're still sinners. Okay. And guess when we will overcome sin? Look, if we can overcome sin here, we don't need glorification. The reason we need glorification is because that will be the final removal of the sinful nature. And then we will have a new body, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death, and no more, ladies and gentlemen, sin. Meaning, until glorification, sin will persist. Sin... Why is it that in every letter written to a church, it's like there's problems in the church. You're fighting. You're arguing. You're divided. This is happening. This is happening. Why is it? Hey, because if supposedly all these churches are made up of people who've now been set free from sin and they've overcome sin, why can't they overcome it? Why the put off, put on, put off, put on? Why the constant struggle? Why is that? Because we're saved by an imputed righteousness, not an infused one. Now, I think we're going to have to stop here. Let's see if we get a good stopping point right here. We're looking at it from the, both what Paul says about himself, what Paul says about the other letters, what Paul says about believers and the New Testament and mm-hmm. say that, that there, Paul must be doing something different here. So when now, did, uh, the, was it the Reformation? All right, we'll stop right here. All right. So we're going to go with thir- we're going to stop at the 13 minute and 53 second mark. 13 minute f- 53 second mark. So according to them, so far, Paul is not speaking of himself, he's pretending to be someone else, and their great support for this is Erasmus, a heretic, Origen, <laughs> yeah, go study some of the things Origen taught and Jerome. <laughs> That's That's their great argument. Erasmus, give me a break. Erasmus, that's who you're going to turn to for your exegetical work? I don't, unbelievable, okay? So Paul is pretending to be something he's not because if Paul can't overcome sin, then none of us can overcome sin. And we know Paul overcomes sin, so then we all can overcome sin. And when they say overcome, they're not talking positionally, they're talking practically. And either they have to redefine what overcome means or overcome means I've overcome it, but I still do it. So, so far, 13 minutes and 55 seconds in. And, well, I don't know what to say. I'm going to put my paper down. I'll put my pencil down. There we go. We will do part two. 
I don't know if we'll do it tonight. I don't know. I don't know if we'll do it tonight. Maybe we will. Uh, you know, tomorrow we're going to be coming in and we'll be definitely working on it tomorrow. Maybe, maybe uh, this is one of those situations. This is going to take, this is going to take three or four parts. So I may have to have someone create some artwork for a special series on Romans chapter seven. Romans chapter seven, saved or unsaved? What is Paul? Is Paul saved or unsaved? Is this Paul pretending to be an unsaved person? Which would mean, okay, oh, someone says, let's do it tonight. Okay, all right, all right. Then maybe tonight we will take, I'm going to take a break. Got to give myself a break. And then we can, we can, we can, we can do something. I think, I think I'm going to have to order some food. I need food. I need food delivered. Come on. Now, look, someone, I, just, I started this entire episode with someone just walking through my door and walking up here, sitting down, listening with me. The next time you just walk in my door, bring some food, people. I have to eat. All right. Well, I am going to find some food. All right. I think that's interesting. All right. Well, we'll see. All right. I want to say something else profound. I don't know what else to say. I just know this. Don't use origin. <laughs> we could get into Jerome, but origin and Erasmus, for crying out loud, literally Erasmus, bondage of the will, debate with Luther. I mean, oh, true, I do. Well, someone said you have the donuts. Well, the donuts here, okay, this, oh, wait, no, these, this bag hasn't expired. I thought this was an older bag, but I guess I do have powdered donuts. I do have powdered donuts. So this may be a new bag I had. Sometimes I'll bring something up here and then I'll forget that it's up here. So yeah, I have powdered donuts. I think I'm going to look for something of a little bit more substance than powdered donuts. I think so. I think so, but we'll see. Okay, there you go. All right, someone just said, I think you should come on over. The donut, I'll keep the donuts for you. You come on over, the door's unlocked. Just walk in and you can sit down and eat donuts while I sit here and labor over Romans 7. You can just, and then I'll just sit here and, starve. All right. No. All right. Thanks for listening. Hope everyone have a great evening. Hopefully that was kind of fun, kind of frustrating, kind of fun. But I do agree that if Paul couldn't overcome sin, none of us can overcome sin because I don't believe any of us overcome sin because I believe we continue to sin until glorification, unless you have a new definition for overcome. And if your definition is you've overcome sin, but you still sin, you're overcoming stinks. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. We'll talk later. God bless.